0: Far better travelled, more learned and gastronomically discerning adventurer than me, the late Anthony Bourdain, once said that any reasonable, sentient person who looks at Spain, comes to Spain, eats in Spain, drinks in Spain, is going to fall in love. As he then went on.
1: Otherwise, there's something deeply wrong with you. (laughs) Spain's the sort of place that never really made any sense anyway, and in the very best possible way.
0: From a wine lover's point of view, that certainly rings true. With over 400 grape varieties, it is a diverse and baffling land, and one that every summer we have the privilege of exploring on the Vuelta a España. This year, our daily coverage of the race starting in Barcelona on August the 26th and ending in Madrid on September the 17th goes by the name El Clásico, a nod to another <clears throat> time-honoured Spanish sporting fixture. And, as every year, we've put together a case of six wines from on or close to the route with our friends from Divine Cellars of London. In this episode, and please switch off here if you come to the Cycling Podcast for cycling, cycling only, and have no interest in knowing your Riojas from your Riberas, you'll hear me discussing and tasting the selection with Angus McNabb, Divine's resident Spanish wine aficionado and guru. We were in the rather echoey Divine Underground tasting bunker, pouring, clinking and slurping and you'll hear a bit of that in my audio in particular, but hopefully it won't detract too much from your listening pleasure. The case itself is available in the UK from Divine Cellars at www.dvincellars.com, that's the letter dvincellars.com and you'll find the names of the wines and information on how to order in the show notes. Just finally, and Angus and I do also touch on this in the episode, we would urge you to always consume alcohol in moderation. Well, Angus, here we are again, a year on from our last weather case. Now, Greg, this time Greg's in a canoe, he told us this morning. Um, He's in Australia, he's back to the homeland. He spent most of the summer, I think, watching cricket. Yeah, gather mutual um, acquaintances have told me he's been really consited at the Oval um, chugging rosé I think I think I heard And
1: um, but Angus how are you I'm really good thank you very much really really good really excited about um, this case and La Vuelta in general it looks like great route and Angus, you've been hard
0: at work this summer curating the case, but you've been you've been hard at work, also traveling around the world, globe trotting, tasting lots of wine, tasting 400 wines in a week. You told me, um, don't know whether that was a record. Tell us what you've been doing this summer.
1: So, um, so we all started in Barcelona wine week in February, uh, where I went to seek some some good wines, particularly for this case, and then I have been to uh, I've been to Crete, mainland Greece uh Clary Islands, allen's tariff and then uh, a week in washington four weeks ago which was uh sensational you have really good wines uh, amazing landscape great place for skiing water sports uh really nice people very low key very different to california um it's an awesome place to go I, I couldn't recommend that enough
0: crete greek wine bit of a revelation for me
1: because my parents gifted me
0: a case from divine status my Birthday, also curated by you, and there was a Greek wine in there. Now, I've not tasted much Greek wine before, but um was very impressed. And um, you were the man who put the case together, I believe.
1: Yeah, I mean, Greece is a very special place. I mean, if you know a little bit about history, you probably know a little bit about the Minos. You know, 5,000 years ago, the first civilization, has a, and a beautiful um, Nos Palace. Uh, uh, the best museum I've ever been in my life, archaeologically, is in Heraklion. And in terms of grapes, they have their own grapes. You know, it's a place that's kind of sort of in the middle of nowhere, and it's been w- very well protected. So the grapes that you find in Crete are very unique to uh, to the island. Uh, fair to say, that the whites are a little bit more interesting and fresher, more uh, to um, more to the palate of the UK market. The reds can be very delicious, but also can be a little bit more challenging, a bit more austere. But a yeah, great value for money. It really, wines with a lot of personality. They're very unique um, and worth seeking out
0: an emerging power could it be
1: i mean value for money the wines are great and they've got lots of personality so the potential is there if you want to try something different and you want to not spend too much money it's a place to buy wine from angus you know you talk there about not spending too much money that's
0: becoming more and more difficult if one is buying wine we were talking about this just before we started
1: recording wine's getting more expensive well we had um we had really bad news and we had a, a new duty increase uh from the government uh and it's quite hefty in some cases about 40 45 percent on the current duty. And of course that attracts VAT on top. And that doesn't mean really silly. So we have gone from five different bands of duty to one to twenty different bands. So a lot of red tape was gonna cost a lot of money and um and we get an increase in in, in February twenty twenty five. Um, obviously transport it's it's difficult so and now it's the time to explore different regions different grapes and um, and obviously look for smaller producers where you get a lot more for your money than you would do uh, from from big producers big brands and smaller regions some of which we'll be tasting today well, we talked last
0: time, I think it was at the Giro before the Giro. We talked to Greg about de alcoholized wine. Um, that's one way of getting around the increasing duties. but just drink less, a little bit less, just a drop less. We talked about this, didn't we? Yeah,
1: yeah, before we started
0: recording 125 milliliters instead of 175.
1: Yeah, I think that's perfect. You know, I mean, I, I, I maybe should have said this, but I, I drink pretty much almost every day. But I have one nice glass of wine with dinner, um, you know, on the weekends, maybe two or three. Um, but I, I open a nice bottle of wine and it lasts two days or three days. You know, you just make sure I put the cork back, put it back in the fridge, regardless of the colour. Take it out a little bit of time before drinking it. Uh, but yeah, I think drinking better and less. You just need to drink less. When you have a really nice glass of wine, sometimes one glass is enough. Angus, let's get on to the welter, shall we? Without too much
0: further ado. Now, the route is shaking. The race is shaking. up. It's a bit of a cracker. We call it El Classico. Um, partly because of the football reference whisperer, because people get upset when we talk so much about football. However, El Clásico, of course, is the match that pits Barcelona against Real Madrid, um, the two most famous football clubs in Spain. And the world is going this year from Barcelona to Madrid, hence why we've called it El Clásico. But it is going to be a classic also because we've got Remco Avenopol, Jose Wingegor. Juan, I you saw Primo's Rogers, Garen Thomas, cracking start list from a wine lover's point of view? Um, Angus, what about this canvas when it was presented to you, well, knowing that you would have to create our case for this
1: 2023? What, what do you think? Well, you know, it's always challenging because you want to offer people something that they haven't had before. You know, it, you don't want to replicate, replicate, replicate. Uh, because the whole point of the case is is a discovery of new landscapes and also new grapes and, and, and new wines. What I've done is um, swap things around. So two years ago, the layout was a little bit similar. So we were in Utiel and we had a really nice Bobal yeah, in Valencia. And now we're going for a white from that area. And whites from the area are really rare. And the grape varieties are really rare. But we got a couple of cracking wines from there, um, which I'm sure that you're going to love. And so are the listeners. And then in Bierto a couple of years ago, we um, selected Amencia from Raúl Pérez, uh, which is a flagship red variety, which you're a massive fan of. It's great, great mix and great wines. And we're going to go for a Godello this time. So we're having white wines from red wine regions. And then, of course, we've got a couple of clásicos. You know, we have finally a wine from Barcelona. We haven't had one for a while. We've got a beautiful Cava. Um, and then we got a fantastic Río Real Duero that I saw uh, early on in February Barcelona wine we get pre-ordered that wine then and therefore this month
0: you mentioned the wine from barcelona or near barcelona and that is where we're starting in fact um we are talking about 10 days 10 days from the start of the out, we're gonna kick off with the team time trial but we're gonna kick off we're gonna kick off with some fish yeah Cabangus. with a cover now before we taste it um, cover. There might be some confusion about what that is, uh, what well, it has been in the past, because well, I think it was something that uh, people became familiar with 10, 15 years ago. At one stage, it looked poised to become the alternative, the most popular alternative to champagne. And Prosecco, the Italian sort of, well, they um, they snuck in. word. I'm,
1: no, I'm sorry. sorry. Angus, but what is Cava? So Cava is a traditional method sparkling wine. Traditional method means it has two fermentations. So the wine has second fermentation in the bottle, which creates the magic. Creates the bubbles and that sort of lovely biscuity, pastry, brioche aromas that you get from the process called autolysis. Now, two things you need to know about Cava is that it's probably one of the very few traditional method sparkling wines in the world made with indigenous grape varieties, mostly. And the second thing is that it's fantastic value for money. You know, it used to be the best selling sparkling wine in the UK 10 years ago, and it's obviously fallen off the cliff, like many other classic. Has it really fallen off It has, like many other classic wine regions in the world, say Chianti, Suave, um, you know, uh, it became popular. and uh, Big boys go in, you know, bought all the vineyards, started producing high, high deals, high deals, low quality, and you started getting, you know, black frosted bottles in the supermarket and things like that, or stuff that didn't taste very good. Um, so, there's a new rejuvenation of the area and people that know about why might know that a few producers, very big, big very good producers, left the Appalachian Kaba created something Corpinat, called, called Corpinat about five years ago. So Kawa had a serious look at this and basically they put an emphasis on um defining villages and also defining organic viticulture and long lease aging. So we're starting to see really quality is really massively improved. Um, it is the best-value traditional method sparkling wine in the market. Let's taste it. Okay, so what do we got here? So we got Cabo Reserva by a family called Sumaroka. Now, these guys have been wine growers for well over 150 years and they started making wine in 2008. Everything that they do is organic. They work organic with biodynamic principles and, and they make wine with extended lease agents. So this is mature for 24 months in bottle. Just to give you an example, an all entry level Cava will be nine months. So we're talking about wine that from the moment the grape it gets harvest to it gets released to the market is three years. Any red
0: grapes in this? Some in Champagne, of course, there are red grapes used.
1: No, Cava is all about Charello, which is the king grape, or the quick, you know, the best grapes. Perellada and Macabeo. This one has Seven percent Chardonnay. Chardonnay adds a little bit of texture and a little bit of mouthfeel. I believe it's never been more than seven percent a, it's a component of the blend. Um, but it's it's all about charello, macabeo, and preyada, which are the traditional good and it's lovely. It's biscuity because it's been twenty. 24- biscuity, but not too dry. It's certainly not as dry as brut champagnes that people will be familiar with. No, great, but this is this is sun ripeness. We're in Spain no? We're in the Mediterranean. We're not in Cantu. We're not inland. So this is one of the good things about cover. If you're worried about sugar and calories, most of the covers are very low in sugar content or brut nature. In this case, this is a brut with three grams of residual sugar. So um, around this area, Costas del Segre, it's an area that um, has mostly red, spray, Mediterranean, lots of the rum varietals, lots of granache, muvedre, uh, carignan. As well, all these great varieties, probably definitions took them into Catalunya and then travel into France. The Catalunya, it's probably one of the oldest winemaking regions in Spain with about 3,000 years of history. Mm. The Phoenicians brought the grapes into um, the north, so near Girona.
0: Well, I guess we are going to move on to our second wine, but before we do, um, you did, you, you made some reference there to so the, the ineffable P word Prosecco, I I think I brought it up first and you're discussed. Let's talk a minute about Prosecco versus Carla. Um, should one want to buy a bottle of cava as an alternative, or maybe they would like to employ this cava as an alternative to Prosecco, um, is it as versatile as Prosecco? <laughs> Will you be absolutely cowering or, or bristling? Should someone use this in their upper on the spritz? People
1: need to buy what they like. Yeah, you just need to buy what they like. There is a difference in quality. There's a difference in winemaking uh, and processes. Look, you can have two cars. They both can be red. They'll have four wheels and a steering wheel. But no, they're not both Ferrari. One can be a Fiat and the other one can be a Ferrari. Traditional method sparkling wines are more structured, have higher acidity. They're more versatile with with food. And they're they're, they're more interesting. But perhaps if you just want to drink a nice easy sparkling wine, it's got a fair bit of residual sugar and it's hot. Something simple, Prosecco is maybe the way to go. Um, I, for the avoidance of doubt, uh, Prosecco is not a traditional method. No, no, it's been in the tank. So second fermentation in the tank, usually lasts about two to three uh, months, is bottled and then released in the market. On average, most Proseccos will have twelve to fifteen grams of residual sugar. Um, and so what difference will people taste between a uh, good carbide like this one and the uh, off the shelf Prosecco? So I'll say that Prosecco is a wine that varies towards uh, sweetness. And um, it's got lots of, sort of green characters, uh, maybe a little bit of floral elements, but, you know, green apples. Um, mm-hmm. Traditional Methods Parking was with French corta Champagne, Cava. Uh, English Parking was much more savory there. There is the built around acidity, that sort of yeasty, lovely, gisty flavor. Uh, almonds, hazelnuts, um, um, the just more complex wine. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as I know, Prosecco in the 1970s was a wine very much like Moscato d'Asti, so a wine that was low in alcohol with high levels of residual sugar, so it stopped the fermentation by cooling the wine down, and you had a wine that had five, six, seven, eight, nine percent of alcohol, followed the residual sugar, and it was very nice as an operative in summer. And they love sparkling wine in Italy. It's a uh, country that they drink more sparkling wine. I think i never seen a country that drink so much sparkling wine. Uh, but Prosecco was really made famous by Harry's Bar, you know, the famous cocktail you know, with a peach puree, yeah, you know, and that's, and that's one of the ways that he got his name. And also too, I think the 2008 crisis played a massive role in the catapult of 2nd in the UK market. There were two, two critics, Charles Corrin and Gill, that really kind of sort of wrote about it. None of them are really wine drinkers, uh, but they say, you know, this is very cheap, but it's a good alternative. And it kind of sort of, through the recession, it kind of sort of took off. Until that moment, I think Champagne was, um, you know, very much the number one. Mm quality sparkling wine sold in restaurants and bars um, and that change
0: we've talked before as well about the sort of intangible factors in wine i mean wine's a fascinating industry to me as well just because um, i think a lot of the normal principles of marketing business don't really apply or or apply in different ways from other retail industries in particular but things like for example the name of prosecco um, it's just exotic enough but it also kind of and trips off the tongue in a way that maybe another sparkling wine name of another sparkling wine may not and who knows how much that contributed no one will ever be able to ascertain that with any certainty but it's always struck me that that could have been a factor as well The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport Science in Sport fueled by science
1: Angus next wine please So um, back all up back all up and get ready for the journey so we um, we're gonna go and we're gonna include our first natural wine ever in the, in the case. Um, but when I mean natural wine, I mean a wine that has nothing, absolutely nothing added to it. Not oak, not fining, not filtration, not additives, no sulfur. Uh, we've been working with the wines of uh, Sayedless Forest for about three years. We love them. Um, it's one of our zero sulfite wines um, in the shelf. And uh, it's a really nice story. Roger, um, who is a teacher, uh, he teaches history on secondary education in Spain um, started teaching about 15 years ago and two years later he got assigned to work in Alicante and he had to drive this two and a half hour journey um, every day and he kept driving past the vineyard with an old man at his dog and he was blogging about wine and he liked wine but obviously it wasn't a winemaker or anything and he just thought for himself you know if this old man can do it looks happy with his dog why can I not do it So there you go. So um, about 12 years ago, he bought some land and he planted um, three hectares, which is tiny. And he planted loads of different grape varieties. There is even a clone of California Syrah in this wine. Um, He's not trained. um, And I just love the purity of his wines. The wine, it's a little bit different. I'm sure it won't be for everybody. There's nothing not nice about the wine you know the wine is not fizzy so what's really important about this wine is this wine needs to be decanted at least 15 minutes to before drinking and if you haven't got a decanter that's fine that's not a problem just pour yourself half a glass and two glasses and then let it sit there for 15 minutes um the other really interesting thing is that this wine changes all the time so you can open it today have a glass and put it in the fridge and then have it tomorrow, and it will be totally different. You know, really important about this wine as well is the storage. So please, when you guys get your case of wine, put this wine somewhere cool, not in the kitchen. Make sure that it's a stable temperature. Put it in the fridge if you want. It's not a problem. Uh, but I hope you really like it. You know, it's, it's a wine it has got lots of complexity. There's lots of flowers and, you know, sour red fruits on the nose, lots of Mediterranean herbs like wild sage, rosemary. That's awesome. Absolutely. The one wine that hasn't got any oak, but it's quite meaty on the palate. It's got some nice grippiness and lovely acidity definitely something for you can enjoy a lot with food Um, And yeah, I mean, I I just I just really hope you you guys enjoy this this comes from Castellon, So we um, we're in stage five. We're stage morella. It's really next door to morella Um, it's a beautiful place it has got some beautiful oak oak caves and it's the only natural wine producer in the whole region wow
0: Is this something that's catching on in Spain particularly? Um, I mean, it's sort of sweeping Europe in terms of, well, certainly the consumption in Northern Europe. And I think a lot of the time people don't necessarily know what natural wine is,
1: what they're buying, but they sort of like the concept of it. They like the sound of it. I think so. You know, I mean, uh, you know, a big driver of this was in the south of France, in the Roussillon, you know. And that, you know, if you go to Catalonia, you know, if you just go north of uh, Castellon and you go into Monsanto, it's probably up. 30, 35 natural wine producers there. Mm. So it's, it's massive in Catalunya, It's starting to show now in, in Andalucía, in Jerez. Uh, so definitely, um, definitely it's a movement that is picking up. We've got to be careful. I know, with, you know you know, we will never only stock natural wines. And when we stock natural wines, we taste them and we make sure that they are enjoyable. Mm-hmm. These guys, all they want to do is to make a wine that is as close to the soil and to the great variety as they can possibly can, you know, and if you've got a wine that's got asphyxia or it's got off smells, then it's, it's not a good one mm. So, um,
0: and when we talk about natural wines, Greg always talks about them um, disease pressure and the relationship of climate and disease pressure. Basically, low humidity or lower humidity in some cases will lend itself more to the production of natural wine because it's less
1: conducive for bad kind of yeah. bacteria and so on and so forth. So, in you know, order to make natural wine, you need to be organic and biodynamic, generally speaking. And when you look after the soil, then your bunches are open, you know. You're not putting fertilizers. You're not pumping a lot of stuff on the ground. So basically, the, the, the vines are not overproducing, you know. They're producing how they should do. So you have bunches that are a little bit less tight. You have a lot more. Uh, the wind can go through them. So you, you have a much healthier environment. It's like us humans, you know. If to take, we take antibiotics and painkillers and vitamin supplements all the time, you know, our body's going to be it's not going to be settled and then we're likely to get sick easier to have problems so it's the same in the vineyard so the the if you work biodynamically you can what your, your vines are a bit stronger and in a much better position to fight disease. but yet yeah, the pressure is there and production can be sometimes half because of that
0: well, Angus, it's a fantastic start. Two wines down. We're still in the first week of the West Eye Span. I thought we'd pause at this point, um, Angus. In the past, or certainly the, I remember one podcast, I think, for a Tiger, in which Greg briefly um, recapped his sort of wine origin story for us. Um, we know that you are half Spanish, and we're going to say arbitrarily, you're half Spanish, half Scottish? Yes, Scottish. You grew up in Tener- in the Canary Islands, yes. Tenerife. Um, tell us why, how,
1: when you became passionate about wine, please. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, there wasn't very much wine drinking in my family. And um, when I was there, really attracted to wine in my teens. But, um, but I, I'd always like, I, I love flavour and I love texture. I started I my career as a chef. Um and um, I still like working as a chef because you don't talk to anyone. It's really antisocial. But breaking news, let me tell you a secret chefs have, have the worst eating habits and diets in the world. They love McDonald's at one o'clock in the morning. I just couldn't deal with that. And, um, and I just thought, if I'm going to be working as a chef making this food and not talking to people about it, then I said, not really interested. So, what was the next thing flavor? You know, making things. So I, 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 I spent two, three years as a mixologist. Competed a national level mixologist. Yeah. So that's a guy who makes drinks behind the bar. Um. So I did that for about three years, and then I came to the UK, and um, you know, talking about late '90s, early 2000s, and the cocktail scene was non-existent, really. You know, I hadn't really picked up. And um, I, I worked in some really nice places. I opened the Royal Albert House as a head bartender there. About back year two thousand, but I kind of sort of got bored because it was all about gin and tonics and becks, mm. Yeah. You know. Um So an opportunity came to um, work in fine restaurants and uh, in management, and I started that. I worked with a couple of really talented guys who now are uh, both master sommeliers, and um, that's when the 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 bag of wine uh, hit me. I tasted the wine; it totally blew me away. Um, um, I can't say because it's, it's, it's from Grace Country. It's an Australian wine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I tasted a very special wine. It's called Hill of Grace. And it comes from Clare Valley. So it's a very old vine, 100% Syrah, uh, sort of cool climate in Australia. Um, and it just totally blew me away. And, um, and then I was say, you know, 23 years later, have you done, are you a sommelier as well? So I, I done my WCT level one, two, three, four. I done the core master sommelier level one and two. Um, so yeah, I, I went, uh, I worked, you know, worked for Richard Corrigan and Lisa House, one star. I worked for Marco Pierre White, um, uh, Terence Conrad. And then lastly, my, my last uh, head sommelier role was with Heinz Back at the Lanesboro uh, about 10 years ago. So I managed wireless from 300 bins to 2,500 bins. And I competed at national or international level. Um, I, I'm still somebody. I still do a little bit of consultancy. I still occasionally um, go out and do some work in one or two stars, help help guys out. Um, it's um, it's a way of life, and uh, you know I, I'm always eager to learn more and visit more vineyards up and and taste more wine. You know, it's just, it's a wonderful one. It, it's a never ending world. I mean, it's that's, that's the beauty of it. It is the beauty, sort of also frustration as well. I find with wine. I
0: mean, uh, other people think that maybe professional cycling is a complex to nuanced world but nothing it pales really pales in comparison to wine um you know you could spend a lifetime just researching finding out about becoming passionate about soil types you could also find that you could spend another lifetime just to learning every varietal that's drunk and planted everywhere else in the world so it's a it's a baffling world and um yeah it's far too big to wrap one's Arms around. However, let's try and wrap our arms around the rest of this Hueda Espana with our third wine, please, Angus.
1: So, um, so we're we trying a little bit further south from uh, Castellón and we're in Utiel. So, Utiel, you know, really high altitude uh, area inland uh, from the Levante, probably about an hour. is land that's famous for Bobao. We've got two different white wines in here. So, Daniel, for this this particular wine, we're going to work with the wines of a good friend of mine called Bruno Murciano. When I was just talking about being a sommelier and worked at the Lanesboro, Bruno Murciano uh, was the wine director at the Ritz. And um, there's a guy who is Utiel through and through. He's from a little village called Caudete de las Fuentes. And his mission in life is always to put Utiel and Bobal in the map. And um, he started his project in uh, about... 10 years ago, a little bit more than that. And as you know, this area is for red wine. So he had a vineyard and about 200, of, 200 vines out of 10,000 were white. So he started doing micro-vinifications of these local grape varieties and he liked what he did. So he bought a vineyard, grafted five indigenous grape varieties from the area and released these wines about five years ago for the first time. So we got Pieles Doradas, which is a combination of Meserguera and Macabeo um, Which is really nice very Mediterranean It's got lots of lovely sage some medley fruit. You have this beautiful sort of greek Greek smells, you know, maybe a little bit of chamomile a little bit of fennel Really interesting. I think when you when you smell and taste these wines, you know, you're in the Mediterranean You know either whether it's in france or in spain Mediterranean now for the second wine Las Blancas. The reason why we're doing two wines, you couldn't get it's very small production. You know? so those, those wines are made seven thousand and nine thousand bottles in total. So Las Blancas, which is the the trade up for, a mere six pounds more, you can get Las Blancas. Las Blanca is an outstanding one. It has equal parts of the five Indianos grape varieties that he planted in a single site. This vineyard is amazing. It's next to a river, in the middle of a natural park, a mm-hmm. thousand meters above sea level, surrounded by a river and by a forest. There's nothing else around. Well, yeah, absolutely, and it's really interesting because it's five different grape varieties. The first grape variety ripens in the middle of August, and the last one in the middle of October. So we're talking about ninety days. So what he does, Bruno, is picks all these grapes and puts them in a in a tank, keeps them at between two and four degrees to stop the fermentation. So the, the the grapes are macerating for ninety days, and he presses and ferments in large Burgundy oak um, barrels that so are about six hundred liters, um, and it's a wine that's got beautiful complexity it's got grapefruit it's got beautiful white peach it's got fennel chamomile yellow flowers more minerally than the first one absolutely yeah you can you know this area that we, we're talking about castillo and valencia is all on a plateau of limestone and limestone is so key for minerality water retention and viticulture. you know same source that you find in champagne in chablis mm. in the Loire Valley.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily guess that it was from that part of the world. Um, usually, and this is maybe my lack of knowledge about um, white wine, particularly in that part of Spain, I would associate them
1: with well, low acidity, a little bit flabby. Would they be? Definitely. Correct, tired. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not in this case at
0: all.
1: No, there's loads of energy of those wines. You know, I I recommend so for both of these wines, Daniel, I, I recommend drinking them at 12 degrees temperature. Um, I recommend decanting Las Blancas. The trade up uh, for at least fifteen twenty minutes before you it's drink a white it. White wine, That's not absolutely. In here. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it opens up massively. drops the acidity. It becomes a lot more textured. Mm. You have a lot more of the fruit. If you like your wine really cold, some people do. Mm. I suggest you put the bottle of wine in the freezer half an hour before you decant it, and then put it in the decanter so you don't lose any temperature. But definitely the of wine. I mean, they're, they're great wines with food and without food. They have loads of personality. I personally prefer Las Blancas, more acidity, more minerality. Mm -hmm. Um, Peles Doradas is great. And I think, um, yeah, again, you know, a small producer, six hectares, you know, ex-sommelier, organic, biodynamic principles, just a little bit of sulfur, but no manipulation, all wild yeast. And the barrels are old. They come from Burgundy. Um, Yeah, really, I, I think, cracking stuff. Excellent. I guess we're on to number
0: one, number four. Now this takes us to stage, where are we in the race? We are, I'm gonna say we'll go with stage uh, 11. This is a one that could correspond to two different stages. So we're now after the rest then for stage 11, we are sort of getting into River de Duero territory. And that means that we can move on to one number four.
1: Yes, so um, so this is one of the other wines that I sourced to Barcelona Wine Week um, earlier on in February. Um, Barcelona Wine Week is quite intense. I tasted four hundred wines in three days, um, so it is a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's you know that's how we roll in the wine world. <laughs> you know, we spend our days off and, and and holiday time visiting vineyards and tasting, tasting, tasting. And when we, we taste, we speed. You know, we don't drink because you've got to keep your palate fresh. And you know, in most most cases, you've got to drive from A to B. You can be you know. Uh,
0: this is um, this is something that, I mean, I have very limited experience, but I have done tastings, tastings that involve 90 wines or so in a day, um, back in the day, many, many years ago, um, in Switzerland. But, Angus, this is something that people maybe, you haven't done this, they don't appreciate how tiring it is and also how, even with a spittoon at hand, um, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to remain lucid, shall we say? Yeah, when
1: I do it, I tend to do it in blocks, two, three hours, I tend to take a break. <laughs> Have a little sandwich, you know, a power bar, uh, you know, get a bit of fresh air and then and then and then and then go inside again, try to maybe do whites first or reds, you know, try to have you know, you have to have a plan. You can't taste every you know, you have to have a plan because otherwise it all gets a bit fussy and, and I I take notes. You know, taking notes takes time, you know, you gotta think because you know, you gotta look at the nuances and mm. you gotta try to compare, you know, why is the one do you taste it better than the other one? Mm. What makes it that little bit better? What is it that you like? tasting 100 it's it's a good effort um I just up to about uh, 200 I think 100 is a good effort 150 might be a little bit too much um you have to take breaks you got to focus you know and it's about also too I'm very democratic you know and I taste one well, whether I like it, I like the great variety I like the area or not I need to understand what it's the great variety and the area whether I like it or not and for me I think uh, to be a good tester, you have to be impartial. You can't put your taste forward first, you know. Um, so, um, Rivera del Duero, you know, was not to like, you know, the, the Pomerol of Spain. You know, why is there full of power, full of black fruit, velvety wines? And this is another wine from a family of growers. They've been growing grapes since the late eighteen hundreds, and um, and they decided to start making wine in twenty fifteen. So we're looking at the second vintage of this wine, twenty sixteen. Milenico Valdepila. Um, when I tasted it in uh, Barcelona one week, I tasted. Uh, I thought this is exactly what textbook Rivera del Duero is. You know, and I hope the the listeners uh, are going to enjoy as much. You know, it's a wine that has a lot of power, a lot of fruit, a lot of complexity, but it's got this beautiful velvety character, this dark chocolate, and this black fruit, and licorice, star anise, sweet vanilla. And then obviously because it's 2016 so we're talking a wine that's seven years old and you start getting hints of leather and also uh sort of forest floor on the on the palate um great wine with a bit of um with a bit of meat
0: perfect wine for a, a sort of caveman like me with unsophisticated tastes very dense um full of fruit full of everything it's quite extra and i love it for that reason however it does make me think you know greg and i if there's been a theme over the last couple of years, it's been this sort of trend towards lighter wines, maybe more acidic, lighter reds. Yeah. And Rivera del Duero is, well, it's it's dense, it's big. As I said, it's extra. Is there a problem in Rivera del Duero? Is this something that people are talking about that maybe the sort of trends, it was taste of sort of veering away from this kind of wine slightly at the moment?
1: So, Mm -hmm. Luke, I mean, these guys are six hectares. So they've got 20 hectares to sell the fruit from 14 away and they keep, all their own fruit. Organic biodynamic principles, uh, 2016, slightly cooler year, it was quite wet, so the one has got great acid. It's not a tiring one. I mean, sometimes in the real world, you tend to find there's quite a lot of, a lot of oak on the ones. Mm-hmm. It's a region in Spain that you have to, you have to spend a bit mm-hmm. of money, and it's all about balance. And, you know, Rivera it's going through a, a process of young people, uh, you know, working organic, biodynamically cutting out the oak. And what's important in here, wild yeast, spontaneous fermentation, so not special a special uh, gist They worked really hard to strike n- a number of flavors. Remember, I was talking before about disease pressure. So, so I was talking to Juan from Milenico last night um, in preparation for the podcast, and I said, you know, what about your disease pressure? You know, how how are you working organic biodynamically? And he said to me, look, you know, if you just don't, if you have, you know, if you cover your 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 soil with, um, you know, just some, some some crop on top, so you got a little bit of grass, a bit of flowers, and you let the vines do their thing, you know. You have no problems because the bunches are not tight, you know, you're not overworking the vine. So, when you have a little bit of disease pressure, the vine usually fights it back. And that's the key. And I, and that's why, and I, I love this one. And I thought it was, um, yeah, I think it's it's a really good classic example and something with a bit of knowledge. great value for money as well.
0: Well, I guess we are. Creaking, creeping towards the conclusion of the web that we've staged well we're, we're at stage 12 um, wine number five and we've got another red we are close to that off that in fact um, just south of there I think the winery floor that makes this wine is located or we'll be driving close to the front door the race won't be um, going right past this winery but tell us a little bit about the wine
1: well, we couldn't, Daniel. We couldn't have a case without a, a, a Garnacha, you know. Garnacha in Spain, you know, this this revolution of beautiful, light, vibrant, juicy wines. And and Fernando is a very young winemaker, self-taught. Um, he only started in the game, you know, fifteen years ago. He's already got a Master of Wine achievement. You know, there's only about four hundred of them in the world. Uh, the guy, it's just fantastic. He comes from, a, you know, he was mechanic engineer, you know, but he got the the wine back him and, and and this is a very good example of new wave garnacha for It's bright, it's beautiful, highly aromatic with lots of hibiscus flowers, cranberry, cherry fruit and a little bit of Mediterranean health. herbs. It's on the lighter side so it's a wine that you want to drink with, you know maybe some seared tuna, maybe beetroot salad. Um It's very, very versatile and it comes to show the diversity in Spain. I think, you know, we talk Touch Based on this before, you know, second most mountainous country in Europe, you know, some of the highest vineyards. Here we're looking at 700 meters altitude minimum. These 700 meters are the highest altitude vineyards in France. You know, we're looking at Yurazawa. And here, I mean the Millenico that we had, the Rural Duero, we're looking at a thousand meters. Bruno Murciano's wine, a thousand meters. And that plays a big role. Change temperature between day and night. You're making reference to the rhone valley I, yeah i was I, just about to, I
0: cross-examined you off mic about the difference between the rhone wines and a wine like this um so the southern rhone is um, very well known for uh Clonache, they call it in france garnacha in spain and what well, wines that people will be familiar with wines like chateauneuf du pape uh cote du rhone Quite different from this.
1: Yes. Why? So lower altitude, and they have these very specific soils. They have this massive pudding stones called galettes. And what these pudding stones do is they attract all the heat uh, during the day, and then at night time reflect that heat back into into the, into into the grapes and to the vines. So they, you know, it's it's hot, hot, hot all the time. While we're here with 700 meters above sea level, we're in Rivera del Duero. We're looking at a change in temperature of 10 degrees, sometimes 15 degrees between daytime and nighttime. So it slows the ripening process you know, maintains acidity. Uh, one of the important things about this wine is that this is aged in concrete vats, so it's not oak. It's very pure, wild juice ferment, um, but it also have quite a lot of whole bunch. So whole bunch is when the winemakers decide not to destem the grapes and press it with, with, with the stems. So these stems give you a lot of freshness and also delays the fermentation and keeps the temperature low. So it means that you have a wine that's a lot more aromatic, more floral, more red fruits, vibrant higher acidity why is it you want to be drinking all the time particularly at lunchtime? time it make you really tired
0: um angus this is a wine that's much more aligned with i spoke about this trend towards lighter wines lower alcohol although 13 percent of things actually low alcohol but a, a kind of wine you, you would chill probably and as i say yeah much more sort of in line with the
1: zeitgeist in red wines yeah absolutely you know definitely you can chill it um you know 12 13 14 degrees you know five degrees maybe a little bit too cold um but yeah it's light it's juicy it's delicious it's easy has low tannin so if you've got a problem with red wine tannin and headaches you know this is perfect wine there's no oak um minimal sulfites you yeah, know it's naturally made but it tastes very very clean you yeah, know it's a great wine to enjoy all the time and it's very 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 versatile. style
0: angus that brings us to our final wine and we are going up back up northwest to uh Bietthor, one of my favourite regions I've discussed before. Um in on the edge, is Galicia? Yes, yes. And well, unfortunately for me, we're not gonna be having uh red Bierthor, But you promised me something equally exciting and is a white Bierthor. Tell us about it, please, Angus. Yes, yeah,
1: so we are we're still in Castilla Leone, you know. This is um Oh well, it's it is Castilla y Leon. it's Castilla, Castilla Leon, it's not yeah. quite Galicia. It's Castilla y Leon border in, you know, almost bordering Galicia. You know, and uh, historic side. You know, the Romans came in here and had uh, fantastic mining opportunities, and 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 through the Romans being here, there's when the vines came into into this region. There's a lot of gold in there. In fact, you can still get gold in the um, uh, in in the Minho River, uh, Florida the famous famous Portuguese river, if you like. Um, so yeah, an area known for Mencia. one of your favorite grapes and wines, but they also have the grape variety called Godello, or Godello if you don't pronounce the double L. And it's a great, great variety. We should drink a lot more, and, and we need to be seeking these out. Um And this is from a, a winemaker called Gregory Perez. And if you remember, two years ago, we had Raul Perez Mencia. Uh, Raul Perez is one of the most emblematic winemakers in the world. Um And he, this is his nephew. He's got a, a handful of vignettes. And, and we got a, a wine that's 90% Godello and 10% Doña Blanca. I'm sorry about this. It comes from granite soils. I know you don't want me to talk about soils, but granite produces wines that you know, quite aromatic and quite mineral. And and we've got a wine that, you know, it's not too dissimilar to the mineral wines of northern France, um you know, with beautiful honeysuckle, floral notes, white peach, a little bit of lime leaf, that sort of citrus character. And then on the palate, a little bit more texture with more generous fruit, white peach, casted apple, almonds, and a really salty finish. It's an excellent seafood wine. It's a good alternative. You like things like Shapley or, you know, Sancerre, uh, but it comes from Spain and and uh, it's a great idea. that 15 years ago nobody knew very much about it and knew how to make wines and now it's a great idea that's making great wines in bierzo in rivera sacra and all around that area
0: i'm very happy um, with the way you you're endeavoring to sort of change people with this case change people's image or my image at least the white uh wine in spain because as i said when we're talking about the the wine down by Valencia earlier, the white wine. I don't, minerality, the things you just mentioned, sort of mm, something a bit like a Sancero or Chablis, not really what I generally think of when I think of Spanish white wine. A lot of people only think of, they'll think of Albariño in, in Galicia, which is a fantastic wine, and um, slightly sad that we haven't been able to get one in this year because the route doesn't go over there, right over to the coast in Galicia. Also, white Rioja, not much else um, when people, the sort of lay customer thinks of white wine in Spain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, white rioja is perhaps the most famous example um, of white wine in Spain. But obviously, white Rioja is traditionally a little bit oxidative, old age for a long time. They're not really in vogue when you get them. The re- when you get good ones, the really good ones. I think white Rioja is an area where you have to spend a lot of money on white, and you get an amazing wine. If you spend little money, you get a wine that's a little bit underwhelming. And obviously, Verdejo, Verdejo is you know number one grape in, in Spain, but. You know, we had Palominos, you know, Mercegueras, Codellos, Doña Blanca. The the white wine scene in Spain is flourishing at an incredible pace and a lot of all vines again and all varieties that we didn't know through DNA research are getting replanted and vineyards that were abandoned are getting, you know, restarted again. So it's it's really an area to look for. But as always, Daniel, small producers try spiritual to purchase your weapons to talk to your independents when you go to the independents make sure you have a budget in mind you don't have to spend £30 on a bottle of wine we got fantastic wines from Spain here for £15 and, and it's with everything you can't kind of like everything I don't like everything you don't like everything it's all about trying uh, but yeah definitely um, it's something to be seeking out for and of course always buyers but Spain is the most exciting wine country in Europe
0: Angus it's another aromatic sensation on the nose, I must say
1: um yeah i I love, you know the one thing is that is that it's got citrus and remember it's got that sort of lime leaf, but then you have it on the panel it's got some lovely textures with more generous generous fruit, you know white peach if you ever had a castor apple before, and then some lovely saltiness at the end. I love that kind of sort of lovely saltiness that the wine has that you know it bakes you for more you know mm-hmm. and what I drink more mm-hmm. and more it's, it's green Spain you know we are we are in green Spain, you know, and this is the beauty about all these mountain ranges and all these cerros and and, and and definitely, you know, this is this is north green Spain is not as cold and as well as, as Galicia. Uh, thank God because it's quite difficult to make wine in Galicia and that's why there's so much white grapes and not so many red grapes. Uh, but definitely definitely green Spain. So, you know, very continental, very cold winters, very mild springs, warmer summers, but always that change of temperature between day and night. Um, but an, an area of they produce fantastic wines. Pierzo should be on everybody's radar for interesting wines. They've got good acid, they're not overly oaked, and they're really best out with food or without food.
0: Angus, that concludes another fantastic selection from you this year. Um, we haven't got Greg here to give us his I don't want to call them hopeless predictions um, for the World Cup, yeah. But um, Greg, I think he's he's definitely got one and a half eyes on the wine and half an eye on the cycling. Do you want to give us a prediction for the for the for the, for the World Cup, yeah. there, There's no obligation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: My knowledge about cycling it's um it's it's it's, it's not as great as, uh, as as it should be. But um I think it's gonna be a cracking race because you got you, you got you got Beach, Mountain Beach Mountain, you got Madrid, you got Barcelona. Um I mean I I kinda of wanna be there, seeing it. The what by Spaniard Lionel, my colleague
0: calls it the whole bit of Grand Tour. We we you know, there's a lot of work involved, but it does feel there's a bit of a sort of end of term feeling about it. And Spain, what a great country to I always say that the, the sort of romantic image that people have of a road trip around the United States. I always think is probably quite deceiving. It's Probably uh, a sort of Route 66 road trip in the United States probably end up being quite boring. Um, if you want to do the ultimate road trip in Europe and go and do it in Spain because the roads are fantastic. There's not that much traffic and you will happen upon... Mountain ranges, parts of the
1: country that you didn't even know existed and that they they'll blow your mind. Absolutely. And you gotta remember Spain's nice country, it's nice and clean. People are friendly. It's cheap too. You can get a good plate of food anywhere. You have interesting wines by the glass in many places. And people are happy to see you. unlike all the European countries, it's a little <laughs> bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yeah, I mean you can drive from Andalucía to Madrid, which might seem like a pretty flat, boring road and you see so many mountains, you know the landscape. Even in the motorway, the landscape is interesting. So yeah, I mean absolutely, uh, so many different languages, cultures, mountains, lakes, coastal areas. Um, yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't know twice a road trip through Spain and to Spain from the UK, and I can't recommend it enough. Angus, it's been a pleasure. see you un placer. Muchas gracias, como siempre. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Creeb and Lionel Burney.